my dad was uh, was with IBM back in the 60s, where, where he actually wrote one of the first bill of material processors. And that I remember clambering into my dad's car as a four-year-old and seeing the stack of computer cards on the passenger seat wrapped up with a, a little you know, rubber band. And I picked them up. Well, what are these? And don't touch those, right? Because you know, if the elastic band went, then went, there went hours of work. Growing a business requires a holistic approach that extends beyond sales and marketing. This approach needs alignment among people, processes, and technologies. So if you're a business owner, operations, or finance leader looking to learn growth strategies from your peers and competitors, you're tuned into the right podcast. Welcome to the WBS Podcast, where scalable growth using business systems is our number one priority. Now, here is your host, Sam Gupta. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the WBS Podcast. I'm Sam Gupta, your host and principal consultant at Independent ERP and Digital Transformation Consulting Firm, Elevate IQ. Just like ERP, the bill of materials is perhaps the overused and oversold term. A bomb could be the assembly of two materials, like wrapping a gift for your birthday, or it could be the manufacturing process of the whole spaceship. But what if the process of manufacturing a spaceship resulted in waste material that could turn into an ice lamp? Would this whole process be captured as part of the bill of materials? How would the cost be accounted for each of them? Does the bomb differ for different teams? How much engineering data does the bomb need to carry? How much financial data does it need to carry? Can it also help procurement teams with their scheduling? Can it produce Gantt charts? Can it compute your contribution margins? These are the questions you are going to have if you are structuring bombs for your manufacturing shop. If you don't configure the bombs right, your costing, scheduling, inventory, supply chain, e-commerce experience, and profit margins will be all over the place. So what are the best practices for structuring the bombs. In today's episode, we invited a panel of cross-functional experts for a live interview on LinkedIn who brings significant expertise to discuss bill of materials best practices. We discussed several types of bombs and their misunderstanding that could result into operational implications for companies. Finally, we discussed several train racks and horror stories due to the poor structuring and governance of bill of materials. With that, let's get to the conversation. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's show. And if you're joining for the first time, this is part of our digital transformation series for which we meet every Thursday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern. We pick one topic related to digital transformation, and we always have a very exciting panel that is willing to share their insights and wisdom. For today, we have one of the hottest and most debatable topics, and we are going to have so much fun discussing that. It's called Bill of Materials. Even though it's called Bill of Materials, it's going to have implications on your entire manufacturing. So you better get it right. Uh, we are going to have fun uh, discussing that. Before we do that, we are going to start with everybody's intros. I am going to start with my intro. If you don't know me, I am Sam Gupta. I am principal at Elevate IQ. Elevate IQ 
is the independent ERP and digital transformation consulting firm. We help our clients in selecting, implementing ERP systems. I've been in the ERP space for roughly, what, 20 years and bill of materials. Oh, my goodness. The kind of problems that I have personally seen. It's just a nightmare. Uh, I'm just going to say that. I'm going to start with now. Bob, do you want to start uh, with your introduction next? Absolutely. Thanks, Sam. Bob Feathers. I work for Bindable. We are in the insure tech space. We're a SaaS provider helping our clients, enabling them to do alternate distribution of PNC insurance products. But I come here uh, today with over 30 years manufacturing experience, including business system implementations, specializing in ERP. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for being here, Bob. Uh, Chuck, can I ask you to introduce yourself next? Yes, sir. My name is Chuck Huxhead, and nowadays I create warehouse superheroes. But for 35 years, I've been in the manufacturing space. And in fact, bills and material and design documentation is exactly where I started out my career and continued with uh, several ERP implementations and uh, improvements over the years. And uh, I'm really thrilled to be here. Thanks, Sam. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for being here, Chuck. Chris, can I ask you to introduce yourself next? Absolutely. Chris Harrington, uh, president and COO of Gen Alpha Technologies. Uh, we create digital commerce superheroes. Maybe that's something new we could say after following Chuck there. Uh, what's great for us is we repurpose uh, manufacturing bills of materials to make the identification process for parts in a digital commerce setting very easy for owners and operators. So that's the world that we play in. I have never built a bill of material, but I've been a consumer of bills of materials for all of my career. So uh, when they don't get it right, it sure is very frustrating for me and for the customers that uh, we serve. So such a pleasure to be here with all of you today. And thank you so much for being here, Chris. And whenever Chuck is going to be part of any show, everybody turns into a superhero. So now I have to deliver like a superhero. So thank you so much for being here, Chris. Abu, can I ask you to introduce yourself next? Sure. Thanks, Sam. My name is Abu, and I am the president here at Pani Maiman Tech Corp. We are a Sage X3 partner, and we have been uh, implementing solutions in the manufacturing space in a wide variety of industries, from chemical, food, and beverage to general industrial manufacturing. And we have clients all across North America. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for being here, Abu. Uh, Mark, can I ask you to introduce yourself next? Sure, and thank you, Sam, for having me. Uh, my name is Mark Lilly, President and CEO of LillyWorks. Uh, the team here at LillyWorks uh, created ERP systems such as ProfitKey and visual manufacturing. So we've got a long heritage in bills of materials and routings and scheduling. Um, so very excited about uh, today's topic and hoping um, we can share with as many scheduling superheroes as we can. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for being here, Mark. And uh, Bob, I'm actually going to start with the first question with you. And a lot of people, I mean, there are always going to be several definitions of what a bill of material is. In fact, I mean, bill of material, if you really think about the concept, it has come a long way. Initially, if you look at in 1980s, the bill of material was literally bill of materials, meaning it was bill of materials. Okay, it's no longer true. Okay, I don't know if it is going to require some sort of rebranding because now you are going to have the whole bill of manufacturing. But in my mind, even that is misleading because it can do a lot more than just bill of manufacturing. So let's say if you were to set the context of what a bill of material is and how it is going to affect different business processes. Do you want to start, Bob? 
Sure. I mean, yeah, bill of materials is kind of a broad piece, but I like to kind of break it into the, the two components of what it is. And, you know, I'll use a kind of marks, but like I look at it as kind of a called the engineering master, right? It's, it's And so what you're looking at the engineering master is two components that are that play off each other, but they're both really important, this whole piece, which is one is your process roadmap, right? So it's like, how do I get this? I'm, I had to make this item. This is my end result. What do I need to get to? And so to do that, I need to build this process roadmap that says, what are the things I need to do? What are the resources and processes I have to go through in my facility to get to this endpoint? And I kind of have that process roadmap. And alongside of that are going to be what are the materials that go into that process roadmap and where do they go into that process uh, to, again, get to that end result? So it really is the combination of those two. And there's a lot that goes on in there, right? I mean, we kind of start around, obviously, unit measure, right? We have the thing long time ago about unit measure, but unit measure is critical because it's not just the unit measure of what you're making, but then how all the things that are going into making that, how they relate to that piece. So you got to have a really good relationship and know what that means inside of your unit measure of those parts that are going into it. So you got to have that right. Uh, you know, we'll get to some stories about what that what that can affect if you're not doing it right. And then you have to get into the actual, again, the process roadmap of the machines that are going through and run rates and just kind of all that setup of how those things go through. And then there's a whole another subset of this whole thing is there might be a lot of other sub processes, right? It's not just like a clean process. Maybe there's a couple other sub components that are going into this final component. Um, you know, again, I worked with more discrete items, but people might hear, you know, if you're in the making, let's say, you know, in the automotive industry, you've got a lot of components, right? You have all these different components going in to make the end thing. So depending on how you look at it, the bill of materials could be very complex depending on what your end product is. So I hope that's a kind of a good starting point for us to uh, bounce ideas off of. It's a very good starting point. Thank you so much, Bob, for that. So Chuck, I'm actually going to come to you uh, for your insights. And I don't know if you're going to have anything to add to the definition that Bob has provided. You can either add to that or share a story related to bill of material that you have seen and where you have seen some sort of implications because of poor bill of materials, I guess. Well, I actually want to add on to what Bob said. And, and it is... It, it's it's taking what Bob said and putting into language that we hear in the 21st century far more often. If I'm going to rebrand this thing, I'm going to call it a bill of value creation. Okay. Because we so often think of this, we come from a manufacturing perspective. I come from a manufacturing perspective. We want to build something. But in truth, there are sales bills of material, okay, where we combine the items and they may only go to shipping. Okay, so but but in being that kit, in being that assembled uh, collection of products, they might be curated uh, or they might be accessories. They they deliver a higher level of value to the recipient. Okay, and I say the recipient because in that case you're going to a customer. In the manufacturing sense, you're you're adding value into this thing, and it may be going to your internal customer, which is the next operation in your process routing. So I really think of it, and, and that's really what it is, right? We're we're taking labor and we're taking disparate parts and we're combining them in some way so that we can create a higher level of value aka higher level of cost and so it's not to be taken very lightly uh, because the higher level of cost carries a higher carrying cost if it sticks around too long uh, and the consequences grow and grow and grow the more value we add as we get further down the line and we make mistakes or there are quality issues or something to that effect, you know, and you and in the sales bill of material, the ultimate mistake, the ultimate issue is that customer experience. 
um, if we get the wrong thing out the door. So I really think of it as a high value and, 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 and in the financial sense as well, the costing sense and, and everything. It's higher value to everyone in the organization and the recipient. Okay, amazing insights there. And by the way, I absolutely love the term will of value creation, to be honest, okay? And I think I am going to get 20 podcast ideas uh, out of this show because, you know, there are going to be at least 20 terms there and we can probably uh, create the uh, the calendar for the next year. But Chris, I'm actually coming to you. When you look at the bill of value creation, obviously that's the outcome that you are trying to accomplish from the from the overarching effort that you are trying to set up. But to get there, okay, you need your data elements to be set up in the right manner. And typically the most complex part for a bill of material is going to be the different perspectives. And each of those perspectives are going to have very different data elements and the needs of each of those departments. The way engineering is going to see the bill of material is going to be very different. The way your production is going to see is going to be very different. Sales bomb, completely different. Bill of procurement, completely different. But you have to have the binding thread that actually ties all of these things together. And if you don't have that, the foundational element, that your skew, if you don't have that, then it's going to be really hard. So in your experience, when you look at all of these perspectives, obviously your perspective is probably going to be slightly more towards sales. But when you look at the bomb, I mean, what are different challenges that you have seen? Yeah, and you know, I love coming after Bob and Chuck because I, I think I can combine, when I think of bills of materials, I kind of combine some of the things both of them are talking about. So, you know, my experience is machines and equipments, right? Yeah. So when I'm thinking about bills of materials, of course, uh, bills of materials can be for smaller level components as well. But in my world, in the world of the manufacturers that we serve, these are big th- products that are being produced. So it typically starts with a design engineer who has designed the product to achieve a function. We're going to dig dirt. So we're building a large piece of equipment to dig dirt. And a design engineer is really working on the ingredients needed. Their bill of material is the ingredients that are needed. Now, uh, a a production engineer is going to take the ingredients and build the recipe. So if you really think about it in that way, now it has to go through production and it has to turn into something that can be produced in all the different work centers uh, that have things. And where the the biggest uh, challenges can be in building out a production bill of material particularly when uh, you have to execute on the the side is that, you know, the engineer is deciding what's going to be manufactured, what's going to be a purchase part. You have a higher level component that's going to go to work center. It might have many lower level components that go into building that assembly. And if one part is missing, the, the capacity planning is where you get a really big channel because a uh, challenge because if that one component is missing in that bill of material to start the assembly so that assembly has lower level components that components missing now you have to move uh, your shift your capacity and your planning because you're still waiting so this is some of the challenge that's happening in a real world uh, situation today as people have supply chain challenges but when you mo- you go from you know, the ingredients to the recipe. Now you go to the service bomb, which is that 
you know, not everything that goes into producing the machine is actually going to be a serviceable component later. So it's, it's taking that next step. Okay, what are we going to put into our tech pubs, our interactive parts manual, to make sure that customers know when they have to repair this area of the machine, this is the assembly for that. Oh, and by the way, here are the components that go in that. If we're going to repair a specific area of the machine versus buy that complete, we need to have the bills of materials for that as well. So um, that's the way I kind of think of a bill of material. And I'm going to add one little thing because, again, I'm on the sales side, is that uh, in sales, we sell a contract, right? So we are selling a thing that digs dirt. I mentioned that. But in that digging dirt, I also had options that I got to select. So I might have selected a few different accessories to go on to my machine that's going to dig dirt. If from the contract, from that customer's PO, that doesn't get into the engineering bill of material as that option has to go into that bomb in that serialized uh, inside your ERP, it could be a missed in the full execution. So you even have a typical engineering bomb that started is what you think you're selling, but the contract said, oh, by the way, we're also selling these other things. So you gotta make sure that that gets into the bomb as well. So um, those are four components that I'd, I'd bring into this whole picture here. Okay, amazing. And my listeners must be thinking, okay, we were talking about sales bomb, the production bomb, the engineering bomb, and the procurement bomb, right? So I thought we were going to be done with that. But now you have added two more layers in this space, which is going to be your service bomb, as well as your template or the configurable bomb. And those are going to be additional layers that you have to think about if you are going to have either serviceable parts and the configurable uh, parts as well. So thank you so much, Chris, for that. So now, since Chris has added two, I'm probably going to add some more there. Okay, and now I'm coming to Abu. <laughs> and Abu, you you are in the process manufacturing space. And in process manufacturing space, things are going to be far more complex in general. The bombs, the way, the interrelation of your ingredients, the amount of insight that you are going to be requiring from your bomb is going to be very different. So in your case, you have complexity such as you know, co-product, by-product, and sometimes discrete as well as process, both of them need to go, go together as part of one production line. So uh, now, I mean, over to you, Abu. I don't know if you are going to add any sort of layers. Uh, you have a name for these bombs, but I have got six so far. Sure, I mean, uh, I can probably add one more kind, which is a planning bomb. So yeah. the uh, bomb is drive your MRP processes, and but not necessarily your actual construction bills. But BOM, in my opinion, is a fundamental for any manufacturing organization. You know, it drives your, your production planning, it drives your procurement planning, it drives your workshop floor planning, especially, in, for example, in food or chemical industry, you know, you have allergens. So, for example, if you're, if you're going to use nuts and it's an allergen, then you, you have to clean the machine first before you can run another production line. Or you cannot mix two chemicals together, right? So those sort of complexities also come uh, driven from the bomb as well. On the engineering side, you know, you have multiple systems which are managing bombs. So you have your AutoCAD and the CAD CAM systems where engineers are designing your bombs. Now that has to flow down to the ERP level. And as Chris said, sometimes the sales bomb is totally uh, different uh, what the end customer sees. I mean, there are lots of complexities, so version control, right? So uh, 
you, you're making in a piece of equipment, but based on different specifications, the bonds can be significantly diff uh, different for each uh, equipment, especially on a custom manufacturing side. Um, on the food and manufacturing side, you have recipes. So you're making the same nuts, but it's a different flavor, so it's a different recipe, right? Whether it's spicy, barbecue, uh, so you have to track all of those together as well. Um, another thing that comes in uh, sometimes in industrial manufacturing, you know, Chuck was mentioning um, you know, before we joined about sheet metals. So what is the scrap percentage? You know, what's the wastage uh, of metals, for example? Or if you go on the food and beverage side, what's the wastage? How much nut or, you know, if you're blinding food together, making how much it went attached to the machine uh, when you went to the next process. So you have to take in all of those factors as well. Other complications that come in is how are the materials related to each other? You know, it's proportional. That's probably the most simplest. But, you know, more complex formulas also come in. Um, and again, at the end, what it all drives down is procurement. If an equipment has 5,000 pieces, you can imagine the complexity in trying to procure all of them, making sure you have it in stock where you need it. So uh, in my opinion, it's a very important part of your value chain, designing them, setting it up, sequencing them, managing the version controls, managing, making sure you have the proper approval controls around it. So it's the uh, you know main engine of your manufacturing process. Very interesting layers there. So obviously, next round, we are going to be doing a little bit of story. So maybe we can touch uh, different aspects of how do you control these things? For example, you mentioned, you know, you're not supposed to be mixing these two materials. So I don't know how that integrity is going to be there from the data perspective and what features you are going to require in an ERP system. Because obviously, if you are going to be using something like QuickBooks, good luck with that integrity. <laughs> okay, thank you so much, Abu, for that. Now, I'm actually coming to you, Mark. And Mark, obviously, when you look at the world of scheduling, you know, uh, if I talk to my plant operators, well, they are always going to think the only thing matters is going to be scheduling. Okay, that's how passionate they are about scheduling. So I don't know if you are, if you guys call scheduling bomb uh, or is it going to be a bomb? But you know, for them, that is the only bomb uh, which matters. Uh, you know, overall in the manufacturing process. But obviously, all of these things need to be aligned even for the scheduling to work. If your procurement is not going to be right, then your scheduling is not going to work. So in your space, let's say if you were to add any other layers here. Uh, based on whatever we discussed in terms of the definition, what would you add to that? So, um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for the softball on uh, on on scheduling. And look, um, uh, th that's that's who we deal with every day. And the reality, as I think Chris has mentioned, is with the supply chain chaos that's going on today, folks are at least concerned, um, if not more concerned with material availability and visibility as they are the internal, their internal processing and their internal scheduling of constraints. Um, because clearly, whatever your priority system, however you're deciding what you need to work on next, you, you can't work on that unless you have the materials, right? That's, that's the obvious piece. So number one, do I even, even have visibility of the materials and, and when they're coming in? Um, do I have uh, do I have visibility of what's going to be allocated? Okay, so I can see I've got three purchase orders coming in across the next six weeks, but which jobs are they going to, right? And, and those types of things. So now, and and that's just the simple example with POs. As we've mentioned, there are subassemblies. So we're we're talking about supply orders. A supply order, yes, can be a PO, but it can also be another work order, right? 
um, which which lends to and now you're going with with Chris's dirt digger right now you're going you know ten levels deep into supplying work orders and somebody having to manage you know all all when those are coming in and so forth so um, if if I may digress um, what I wanted to talk about too is just a historical perspective because um, my my dad was uh, was with IBM back in the 60s, where where he actually wrote um, one of the first bill of material processors. So you know we're we're talking about really you know not quite machine language, but um, you know something higher than that. I remember clambering into my dad's car as a four year old and seeing the stack of computer cards on the passenger seat wrapped up with a, a little you know rubber band. And I picked them up. Well, what are these? And don't touch those, right? You because know, if the elastic band went, then went, there went hours of work, right? But um, point being, the, um, the 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 bill of material processor, which became MRP, um, was all that was designed when we were when the, the U.S. North America was making a standard product, right? Um, and even today, like Chris is mentioning, her dip, her dirt digger may be a standard product. But there's all sorts of options to it. So really, once it hits manufacturing, it's a custom product, right? And and frankly, most manufacturers today are custom, are make to order in some fashion. So the tools that were that we've had and that that still reside in many systems today are the are based on this traditional model of standard products rather than what you'd want to see with with custom products. The issues there are are multiple. Um, one is uh, just the lead time factor, right? To traverse a bill of material, you've got a standard lead time. Well, that, that lead time is going to vary, of course, based upon a lot of things, based upon the quantity of the end item that you're building, for example, right? Based upon what your capacity is and your constraint, based upon your material availability and, and the, the supply chain issues. So it's not a static number. And like like Abu was saying, if you're doing this planning and you've got a planning bomb based upon static numbers, you're it's it's gonna get you into trouble sooner or later. Okay, amazing insights there, Mark. Thank you so much for that. So Bob, I'm actually coming to you, and obviously we are going to be doing a little bit of stories here. But before we do that, and I wanna touch on one of the comments, and this is the trend that we are seeing with our customers as well. So obviously, the if you look at the the product evolution, how manufacturing has evolved, you know we are seeing a lot more products that are going to have either the configurable or the customizable options. So I completely agree with Mark that majority of the manufacturing products are going to be slightly more customizable. Uh, but I have also seen scenarios where you are literally selling a sharpener, okay? or maybe a very commoditized product that, that is sitting on Walmart shelves, okay? But they are treating their production processes as make to order. And that is actually going to throw off everything from the planning perspective. And their rationale and the reasoning always is that I don't want to store anything in my inventory. And just because you know you are treating it as make to order, it does not mean that you are not going to uh, store anything in inventory or your inventory is going to be any inflated, okay? Make to stock could be optimized greatly as well. So I don't know if you have any sort of stories in terms of the way your manufacturing processes are versus the limitation of the system versus how you are executing them in the case of bombs. So any stories, Bob, by any chance? Yeah, definitely stories for sure. Um, and I just want to kind of hit on that thread a little bit, right? Because this is kind of 
taking a step back, regardless of what we're making, whether I'm making it really just as a street product, like I'm making a credit card or I'm making a dirt digger, right? It's just, it's everything in between because we're talking about manufacturing. So it doesn't really matter which, where you're coming from. Going back to Mark's point is there is just kind of that, that high level and where you are in that level defines, starts to define what your strategy is. So and I think Mark's right. Like we were really a make the stock. Like most of the stuff back in the day was like make the stock. Companies just made stuff. They just knew that people needed something and they would just make it and it would just kind of be available. And you just go like, oh, great. I need that thing. And there it is. Even from the car manufacturer, right? You didn't, you didn't go to the car dealership and say, I want this car with this, this, and this. Like they're like, here's the car. It's black and it's got an AM radio. Have a nice day. Like that's it. Like we're not, you don't get to choose. Then, you know, of course, there's a whole make to order, right? There's a whole other make to order, which is truly, you know, that's probably where everything more is. But I think there's this in between, which people don't. And I think the real piece is like assemble to order, right? So there's a lot of people that are assembled to order, which means you have a kind of a lane. You're like, I'm in this lane and it's kind of make to order. But I know like historic, I know historically what components are going to go into this. So there might be some pieces of it that I'm going to have ready on my shelf because those components go into these 10 things that I'm making that are kind of like the make to order things. So I'm kind of preparing, I might be using analytics to kind of know where I need to forecast and that can help you, right? Cause you're kind of making to order, but there's a whole bunch of assembled order items that go into that, that you're kind of putting on your shelf to be ready to be, you know, more lean to kind of, you know, it's lean, but it's like kind of to be have capacity to kind of bring things through a lot faster. Um, so with that, I think is helping to define your strategy because it helps to define how you're going to build your bill of materials. Because that's, again, going back, it gets very complex. But you could say, look, I'm going to build an assembled order. I'm going to build these 10 components over here, have them kind of on my shelf, have a forecast, have a min-max, kind of like I should always have some of these around because I'm going to get, I'm going to have these things, I'm going to need them. And then when the actual things comes in, I just go, okay, I'm going to make the order. Okay, now I'll grab these things. So the bill of, you know, the bill of materials becomes pretty easy because some of these just come in, they're already made. So I don't need to like add them in doesn't become a capacity strength. So then it's really just what are the last pieces? What are the last things? So kind of, again, that assembly, you know, make to order has some assembly pieces in it. Um, so I think that's an important component too, is really understanding where you want to be. And then that helps you to build your strategy of how complex your uh, bill of materials are going to be, or, you know, again, how you separate those things out. Because again, you can get into these massive sub-assembly ones and it'll get really complex and it'll be really hard to manage. So again, this also helps you decide how you want to manage your processes and making life easier for yourself and kind of keeping some things more discreet. Um, so you don't have them all built up into one thing. So yeah, stories, let's see, what do you want to talk about? I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, we can go to the simple one. I mean, I got to be like a simple one, just kind of circle back to the beginning component of just about doing it right. And this is a simple one just to give you a context of how you can do one thing wrong if you set it up wrong and how and think about it and we'll apply it to something else. So in this bill of materials, was they needed a piece of paper. Like it was just, I need a piece of paper to go into this thing that I'm making fulfillment of credit cards for a client where I'm doing the fulfillment. It's got the envelope, got this, and I got this one piece of paper. Well, the paper is stored as a pack because that's what they, that's the, they decided to cut, it's a pack. That's what I'm going to, that's how I'm going to buy it and store it. And they go, okay, well, in the bill of materials, I only need one piece of paper in that pack, which has got 500 pieces. So I'll make my, pieces per 0 0.002 one piece of paper one penny versus the five dollars for the pack well pack in your part maintenance has a, div a, div a divisor of zero so you can't have anything less than a pack 
So when you go through your work order and you go to transaction, it goes, I don't care. You said 0.0002. A pack can only be a pack. So here's your pack to this issue, to this work order, to this job. And now instead of having a penny, you have $5. And then you get to the end and you go sell it to the client and you look at your cost of goods. You're like, oh, this $10 revenue order cost me $15. What, what the hell happened? And you're like, well, you have a pack in there. You can buy it in packs, but that's your purchase. You should have stored it in pieces, which is a one. It still could be divided as zero. But again, these decisions that you make, and this kind of go back to what we talked about in the beginning, which is this whole relationship, making sure I have the right ratios, the right relationship about how I start these things off. So replace piece of paper with computer chip. Replace piece of paper with titanium screw that costs, you know, $50 to make. And these mistakes will cascade so quickly. So if you're making that dirt digger, and you have all this stuff wrong, and you go, I sold this dirt digger for $100,000, and it cost me a million dollars to make. And you're like, what What the hell just happened here? So again, those decisions really make an impact. So that was like one simple piece of paper. But again, put it into any context, and if you get it wrong, and you might not know it, right? People aren't really paying attention. They're just making the stuff. And then somebody at the end runs the cost and routine, and they're like, We've got a problem here. Something happened. So I've seen it a lot. Yeah, amazing story and bomb stories are always going to be so much fun. And sometimes when you are dealing with the complex equipment like what Chris deals with, it's going to be a nightmare to just trace what happened. Okay, just to answer that, it's probably going to take five days, seven days. I don't know. So, okay. (laughs) So, Chuck, I'm actually going to come to you. So, we are looking at any stories that you might have related to bomb, either because of creativity, system limitations, or whatever. You know, we are looking for some sort of drama. Uh, because of bomb. So I, I love the made to order concept because I don't think that people realize how it can deeply affect the processing itself. And in this world, there's this increasing desire to drive order quantity down to as close to one as possible. And one of the places where it can, where it can affect it is in consumables. So I have, I have worked in a company, transformed the company where we did that. We, we went to a very high make to order, very low volume, um, on demand with extremely quick delivery. And the previous manufacturing method was, you know, one person walks this thing all the way through. Okay. Typically they were dealing with higher numbers. It made a whole lot of sense. One person would stay in an operation. They had multiple skills. They would take it. They would cut a hundred, 500 of these things take it, apply, uh, you know, some value to 100, 500 of these things. But then the consumables came along. And the consumables used to be something that were ignored. Okay. But what happened was when we went down to one, the cost to present the consumable became very, very high. So in a discrete consumable where I'm grabbing a, you know, I'm grabbing a, a half of a penny screw. Okay. But in something that has to be cut to length, okay, to cut that to length for one person for one piece can multiply the cost by 10. And so the old method of processing that no longer worked. Now what actually had to happen was we had to come up with standard lengths, okay, at three or four different lengths. And we would have to actually create work orders where we would have to make 10,000 of these things. What was formerly a consumable. Well, what do you do with that? Well, now you go into a situation where it actually has a skew and you're distributing it 
okay, to different work centers so that it's readily available and they can just pull. And it gets costed in. Uh, you know, and right up to the consumables, there's there's typically there's waste. There's an awful lot of waste when you're taking something from something long until something short, and all that has to be costed in. So, but it can really affect the way you process, and you have to you know, consider not only the agility but the cost of that consumable. And to do something counterintuitive, what do you mean I have to create a skew for this little thing that is a quarter of a penny? Well, you do because the processing can cost can raise the cost by ten times. Yeah, could not agree more. And um, you have to look at your processes holistically. And if it is going to be consumable, obviously you need to have uh, you know processes for that as well. So on that note, I am going to come uh, to Chris for her stories. Yeah, yeah. There's like there's a couple that I'm thinking of, and I'll I'll start with um, on the production floor for major equipment being manufactured, oftentimes what's engineered isn't the final product uh, because they'll find out that uh, the fitment isn't quite right and they need to make some design changes or you know, maybe they, they had a specific hose that they had designed into the, the, the bill of material for a particular unit but the guys that are on the floor assembling the units, they go to the shelf and realize that the hose that was called out in that uh, particular bomb isn't available. But they have another hose that would fit uh, from a form, fit, and function. It's still going to be a good substitute. So they grab that hose and replace it on the line. But that never gets back into any of those changes or any of the, the modifications that are made on the line don't get back into the original documentation. So then what what is the machine that goes to the customer? There's a mismatch. So I, I see that uh, as a problem all the time, um, especially on big make to order. Think about an ambulance where you buy the chassis from a manufacturer. That, the chassis is a standard chassis, but now what the, 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 the hospital that you sold it to, they selected many different locations where they want their storage areas to be. So you've got storage on the outside, you've got storage on the inside of the ambulance, and these are all different. There's variable options. Um, and sometimes, uh, the inner workings, when you're starting to fit that all together on the production floor, it doesn't work. So you have to make a change. And I've seen packets go through the assembly line with sticky notes that indicate all the changes that you've made. And that's supposed to get back into the production bomb so that you know exactly what went with. And that becomes, that's where errors can occur later when you're trying to identify the right so now that ambulance gets into an accident and you have to replace the panel that was on that bill of material right so you go back to the bomb but somehow the sticky note didn't get updated into the original documentation so now i ship them a panel it's not the right fit because somebody didn't update so now I've got extra shipping costs. That ambulance still doesn't go to work because I've got to replace the right panel. Now somebody has to take a measurement and say, here's what needs. So I've definitely, I've seen this across many manufacturers. They have the right intentions. They put the sticky note in there, but it doesn't get updated into the ERP system and flow with that particular unit. Here's where I think 
Um, I've seen many uh, companies struggle when they try to create a kit. Okay. So let's talk about a complete pump. You have a complete pump that maybe is a purchase part. You buy it from a vendor. You assemble it into the unit that you've sold. When you want to replace the complete pump, easy. Now you have a potentially as well a bill of materials for the pump if you're going to repair the pump. So did you get the full bill of materials from that vendor and put it into your bill of materials. So if you just need to get some replacement parts for that pump, can you identify them? So it's getting your vendor's component in there so that those are sellable later. And now for somebody that's gonna repair the pump, maybe don't just sell them the individual components, sell them a kit, okay? But a kit is made up of multiple units that have to ship complete together. You wouldn't, you don't ship a kit as individual units, you combine them. But often where I see manufacturers struggle is they don't have a work center to assemble the kit. That's something that shipping has to do. So it's getting the bill of material and the instruction to a group so that they can uh, assemble that kit package it as the kit and go out the door. Additionally, the roll up of, you know, you have to have your, all of the different parts in your kit have to have the right uh, lead time in there because that becomes the lead time for the kits. You have to have the right pricing for all the individual items and then whatever markup you put on it so that you're putting the right price on the kit. Some people uh, will, uh, you know, uh, put more margin on a kit because you're adding incremental value to the customer for buying a kit versus selling them the individual parts. So your your margin calculation might be slightly higher on kits than on individual components. So putting a bill of material together for what is a kit is something that a lot of I've seen a lot of manufacturers struggle with because, you know, it's not like they're building something, so they don't have a work center for it. Their shipping department has to do it, but the shipping, it they just go buy and they go grab individual items, package them in a box, but you have an individual skew over the top of that. So creating the process to get that kit right is something uh, that people struggle with. Well, those are some examples. Amazing. And love these sticky notes, to be honest. Okay. And uh, some systems actually have created a sticky note inside the system. They literally call it a sticky notes that, okay, if you like your sticky note so much, <laughs> maybe do it in the system. Okay. Yes, your data integrity is not going to be there, but at least that is going to be there in the system. So love the story. Thank you so much for that. Okay. Abu, I'm actually coming to you for your story, the crazy scenarios that you have seen with respect to bonds. Well, I have one scenario you know, which I remember very fondly because it made us a lot of money. Uh, and it became a good client afterwards as well. Um, so we got an SOS call from this company who had went live with, you know, with Sage X3 uh, with another partner. And they said the entire manufacturing operation has stopped. They could not invoice their customers for three weeks. And we need people to help us out. So we flew in there and we found that, you know, one, well, like they had a so they had made some simple mistakes in their bomb structure. They bombed, they were a chemical company, very simple proportional bombs, uh, nothing complicated, but just because they had not maintained it properly, they had run into a lot of trouble. So what they did was 
you have a manufacturing, you have an end manufacturing chemical, and you have raw materials in it. So they had no control on who created the bomb and who created the raw material. So for each raw material, they had five different product codes in the system. So when you, when the people on the production floor went in to enter the data into the system, they could not find uh, the raw material in the system. But the raw material existed. It was because the procurement people you know, received the raw material against a different product code, which was different than the bomb product code, right? And so what they had to do was they had to do a miscellaneous issue out from that where the procurement had received the product, the raw material, do a miscellaneous issue into the bomb raw material, and then complete the work order and then invoice the customer out. And they had two levels of bombs. Each bomb would have five or six raw materials and they would have an issue with each and every line of the raw material. So when we went there, they had this pile of you know, paperwork, which they were not able to enter the system for the last one month, and they could not invite their customers out, right? So imagine the panic in the, in the management team over there. So I mean, so that's, the, so that's what it can lead to, right? So you let your people go run amok with your product codes, with your bomb structures, and you know, but some very simple things can result and cost you a lot of money, right? So we ended up writing automated routines and automating the data entry process, but you know, it was very costly for them. So, so that's my story, right? So even if you have a simple bomb structure, a simple mistake like letting your people create multiple product codes and multiple bombs for the same product code can cause a lot of problems, right? So, so, and so I never forget that. <laughs> so, so yeah, so I think so. My moral of the story is make sure there are controls in the in the in the system in your organization to set up the product codes, especially related to bombs. So. Okay, amazing story there. And by the way, I mean, see, we have missed the the most critical bombs, to be honest. Okay, so I know that we are going to have sales, production, etc. But the most critical bombs are going to be your paper bomb, spreadsheet bomb. The sticky notes bomb, <laughs> those are the, the most critical bombs. Thank you so much, Abu, for that. So, Mark, I'm coming to you for your story. Sure, yeah. Um, just a couple comments on, um, on on what's been said so far. Um, one is with um, with make to order. Um, uh, some some systems uh, you you need you need a bomb and uh, to 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 make anything. You need a bomb and a, a route, routing like a standard to make anything. Some systems that are designed specifically for make-to-order or custom manufacturing will will have a a work order that that represent it may be starting from a copy of that, but but then you can track the as built, right? So it's it's like a copy, and and now the way you actually manufacture it, the, the materials you actually use on it throughout the process is recorded. Um, and the nice part of it, some of the more flexible systems as well will allow uh, even something to be added, uh, certainly if, the, if you have a part number, but even without a part number, it's this one-off thing we need, we even have to go buy it, so the cost flows into it and that sort of thing. But um, So I, I thought that was important to, to, uh, to point out. Um, in terms of uh, Chuck's example of the um, uh, having to, you know, create a, a, a a new part. I, it, it's a, such a great example with with a cost factor. Um, what I've seen, and my my story really relates to, and and there's a, a number of examples you can um, uh, personally I have working with clients, or 
um, others in, um, in industry is, is where you look at a bomb and, and you look at the lead times, right? So imagine, you know, the top level and then the, the traditional tree structure going down. And in each level of that tree structure, right, if it's a manufactured part, you've got an internal lead time. If it's a purchase part, you may have a, an outside vendor lead time. But regardless, and especially with like Chris's dirt digger, you've got you many, many levels and all, all these different times you need. So ultimately, the overall time from bottom raw material or purchase material all the way up to the top can be, you know, months, sometimes years. Right. So what what we've seen is is the is looking at that and looking at all your products. So even where you do, you may have a standard product, you may have it with options, but you look at the strategic positioning of inventory within that bomb. And by strategic positioning, I don't I don't mean, you know, a warehouse in Milwaukee and one in Miami. I, I mean, strategic positioning within the bomb, that is looking at it and consciously deciding that at this level in the bomb, we're going to, instead of manufacturing up to that point, we're going to stock that. So we're going to, we're going to create, and, and now the challenge becomes is how much, how much do I want to have, right? How, and, and depending upon the cost, right? Um, what can I afford to have in terms of stocking that? But the, it's, it's obviously very dramatic, right? So now you're taking a product with a lead time of months, maybe years and, and bringing it way down to, uh, you know, in a, a factor of, you know, three, five, ten, ten times lead time reduction by by walking through this and looking at the value, value creation, right? And and how much how much is that that faster lead time worth relative to the holding cost of the subassemblies throughout the bond? Could not agree more, to be honest. And I love the way you have described, to be honest. And this is where your make-to-order versus make-to-stock uh, conversation is going to be slightly easier because you are stocking a lot more in between. And again, you are not really increasing the inventory value as such. Your planning is going to be easier because rather than planning for the whole thing, you are planning for much smaller things. Thank you so much, Mark, for that. So we can do one more round overall in any short comments that you might have on the comments that we have had so far. So, Bob, coming to you, comments over comments. Yeah, I actually just want to go off of what um, Abu was saying. I think it's really an important component we've, he just touched on, which is governance. I think it's, you know, it's, it's a really important piece for you as an organization to really come up with you know, a couple of different components. And I did a bunch of that, which is governance, like kind of who's, who has control of these? Who are you going to allow to actually build these or be in charge of them or monitor them or evaluate them or go back, you know, kind of, or get the sticky notes. Like you should have a good process and a solid process around that and have controls in place. Like, you know, I, again, I had controls like who had, just going back to, you know, baseline, like security, like who has access to modules and who can edit and do stuff like you, you should have those, some real tight controls around your bomb and your part maintenance. Um, in that same component of the governance is build a roadmap. We did a lot of that, you know, again, build a roadmap of your part maintenance, like really build a roadmap. Like, why do parts exist? How's the naming convention? You know, going back to obvious thing of having like five different names for the same thing. It's like, you know, that that's the person that gets brought out back and, you know, shot because like, and, but it could be the person who allowed that to happen. So again, going back to governance is building a roadmap of what that roadmap looks like and how I describe it and say how I'm going to build parts, why I build parts, how I name them, how I do this, how I build bombs, why I build bombs, you know, just really building a strong strategic roadmap of what your organization wants to do and how you want to operate and process and have a strong governance team around that. 
I, you know, I can't say enough about that because I've seen so many of these examples over time because the other thing you're going to deal with is you will have attrition. You'll have attrition. It just happens. And so, you know, think about it 10 years from now. If you don't have a really good roadmap, 10 years from now, people are like, why do we do the stuff we do? And everyone's just like, I don't know. Like, if just, there's no there's no one knows why things happen anymore. So then you build five more SKUs for the same thing because people just don't find it. Oh, whatever. I'll just build this one because I need it. And you just build it. Next thing you know, you've got chaos. Uh, so I would add the governance. I think that's a really important component. Could not agree more. Thank you so much, Bob, for that. Uh, Chuck, I'm coming to you. Any comments over comments, stories over comments? Yeah, I um, along the line of governance and, and building these things out and controlling the product SKUs, I, I would encourage people as you do this, you know, as you build out your bombs, as you build out your systems. I mean, you typically, if you're putting layering an ERP on top of an existing organization, it's extraordinarily difficult to do. For goodness sake, take the human association out of all of your part numbers and the things that you create. You will absolutely positively build yourself into a corner. It, you'll, you'll run out of characters, okay, whatever the heck it is. The problem is that's a double-edged sword. Thankfully, we have really great computers for that because when you take all the significance out of it, it's very easy to build duplicate product codes because they become essentially completely random. So it requires a great deal of discipline, it requires a great deal of governance to use the, the existing uh, language that's been used by my colleagues here. Um, but get yourself out of that. You've spent tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars on this amazing computing system that doesn't think like a person. Use its strength, okay? And you have to let go of that sense of control. And when you do that, it can really be liberating. Um, to really give into the system and allow it to realize all of its functionality, not just a portion of it. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much, Chuck, for that. Uh, Chris, any comments over comments? Stories over comments? Yeah, I would say um, I'm going to bring in the sales element again because there's so many organizations that are uh, thinking about CPQ are already doing CPQ, right? Configure price quote. So they start with the customer facing side, whether it's a dealer who's configuring a product for an end user or it's the customer who gets a, ch a choice to configure. I've seen a lot of configure price quote built by the sales team for a sales solution and they don't always tie that into what gets executed through the ERP system. I want to emphasize how important it is that if you're going to have options inside your CPQ, they need to be options that have been built also uh, and the rules to go along with them inside the ERP system so that when options are being selected and uh, the, the customer orders, that that can be then consumed by the ERP system to allow for all the scheduling that Mark was talking about earlier. Because if the what is quoted and sold to the customer is different than what you've produced. You have a delay right from the, the beginning. It has to be created. So this is where uh, tying that, that CPQ to what gets into ERP and then fully what you're going to submit as the documentation that goes with that piece of equipment to say, this is what we sold to the customer. This is what we build to the customer, and this is the this is the material that they need to service 
that piece of equipment. Now, tying those three. So when I when I hear uh, defining your processes and making sure that you're truly the governance piece, that's where I think things get so missed, especially in today's world where we want to create a better upfront experience. It still has to be tied to everything that goes downstream. Um, and I do think organizations need help with that. Uh, this is where when you're working with a vendor, you really need to have somebody who can uh, keep reminding you, well, how is it set up in the ERP system? How does that roll up? Where are we going to get the price for that option? Uh, how do we know how that option affects the lead time for delivering this machine that should all be rolled up in the ERP system and consumed by the configurator so that the output going to the customer is setting the right expectation? Okay, amazing. Thank you so much, Chris, for that. Uh, Abu, any comments over comments? Sure. I mean, so we, one thing we probably didn't discuss as much was the costing aspect of the bill of materials, right? How What's the cost to make my product? And that all comes from the bomb. and in terms of work that comes to us again, it's something that you know customers often come to us say, "How come it costs this much?" Right? Like we we thought the cost was X or twenty dollars, coming up with thirty dollars. So really, when you have those complex bonds and you have those fast-moving raw materials, it's you know what's the costing methodology on my components? How is that costing methodology going to affect my final end product? It's the ability to understand those costs, which you know, is essential, very important from a bomb perspective. Some companies, what they would do is they'll also have a different bomb called costing bombs. Right? So you have a planning bomb, you have a costing bomb, you have, so just added one more to the list. So a lot of larger companies, perhaps like automobile sector or companies which have been, you know, manufacturing for the last 60 years, they have more mature processes and they can probably do a better job in estimation. But companies in that 150 million to maybe five, $600 million range, where the processes are not that mature, they have a lot of trouble understanding their true cost, right? A lot of time it's based on the gut. You know, it looks right or it doesn't look right, right? And that's how they're making the decisions. So, you know, one thing that we should also focus on when building those bombs is how will it affect the overall cost and how we can use those planned costs to make better financial decisions. Could not agree more. Thank you so much, Abu, for that. Mark, any comments over comments? Um, yeah, definitely. So um, I think every everyone is laughing about, you know, the costing bomb, because even if the, the software doesn't explicitly, you know, manage or have a, something called a costing bomb, everybody is using bombs in different fashions, right, depending upon the culture of the company or within the company or what have you. So um, in invariably, you no, know, oftentimes um, we walk into a company and, and trying to help them with scheduling. We the first place you go is to look at the bombs and and the routings. Are they representative of how uh, even never mind the material flow through the processes? Are they representative of the the steps in the process that actually occurs right when they build something? And you know if the oftentimes the the CFO and the folks in accounting are the ones making the decision on the ERP and they're they're the ones driving the implementation. So the bombs are, you know, costed really well, right? You can you can quote off of them, but once they hit production, then it's another story. So um and it's um it it goes very deep. So it's it's not just, you know, the the routing per se. It's uh it's also, you know, where where are materials called out, right? So initially they just want to get something in the system. So yeah, let's just put put all the all 
400 materials that we need for the dirt. Let's just put them at that first operation so we know we're going to have them when we start. You know, well, the reality is you may not need that, you know, uh, the $50,000 motor until, you know, the final assembly is several months later. So now you're tying up all this cash. So that's just one. And, and you get back to unit, unit of measure. Bob, Bob is so passionate about it and he's right. Um, what we find oftentimes is, is that because units of measure change during the manufacturing process, folks are forced to actually create, we, we've seen this many times in the last couple of years, actually, where, where folks have to have to have a work order for each operation step, having to receive material into inventory, reissuing it back out, because the unit of measure of the material changes from process from step to step through the through what should be a single operational routing. So, um, so it is really important to to look at that and make sure your the the technology and your architecture supports the way that uh, that manufacturing happens, production happens in your uh, in your environment. We could not agree more. Thank you so much, Mark, for those. Uh, so uh, we are super short on time, so we can probably take just one word closing advice. Bob, what is going to be your closing advice for today? Strategize. Amazing, love it. Uh, Chuck, what would be your closing advice? Get rid of your sticky notes. Sorry. Love. <laughs> Love it. Thank you so much. Uh, Chris, closing advice, please. Discipline. Discipline around the processes. Love it. Thank you so much, Chris. Uh, uh, governance around creating bonds. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for that. Mark, closing advice, please. Yeah, uh, re representative. Make sure your production, your bombs, routings represent the way production happens. Could not agree more. Thank you so much, guys, for that. And that's it for today. If you joined for the first time, this was part of our digital transformation series for which we meet every Thursday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern. We pick one topic related to the digital transformation. So make sure you guys are going to be here next week. We are going to come back with another topic. On that note, thanks, everyone, for your time and insights tonight. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you, Sam. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, all. I cannot thank our guests enough for coming on the show, for sharing their knowledge and journey. I always pick up learnings from our guests and hopefully you learned something new today. Want to learn more about Christina Harrington? Head over to janalpha.com. It's G-A-N-A-L-P-H-A.com. If you want to learn more about Chuck Coxhead, head over to prosensus.com. It's P-R-O-C-E-N-S-I-S.com. If you want to learn more about Bob Feathers, head over to bindable.com. It's B-I-N-D-A-B-L-E.com. If you want to learn more about Abu Asif, head over to pennymanagement.com. It's P-A-N-N-I-M-A-N-A-G-E-M-E-N-T.com. If you want to learn more about Mark Lilly, head over to lillyworks.com. It's L-I-L-L-Y-W-O-R-K-S.com. Links and more information will also be available in the show notes. If anything in this podcast resonated with you and your business, you might want to check other related episodes, including the interview with Bob Feathers, who shares his insights and lesson learned from multi-site ERP implementation. Also, the interview with Sneha Kumari, who shares her insights into how SLAs and resource mix impact shaft floor scheduling. Also, don't forget to subscribe and spread the word among folks with similar backgrounds. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please review and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform or DM me on any social channels. I'll try my best to respond personally and make sure you get help. Thank you, and I hope to catch you on the next episode of the WBS Podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of the WBS Podcast. 
Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform so you never miss an episode. For more information on growth strategies for SMBs using ERP and digital transformation, check out our community at wbs.rocks. We'll see you next time.